Welcome back to the podcast for Youth and Policy. I'm your host, Alexander Smith, and I'm joined here today by Walter Block. Walter Block is an American Austrian school economist and anarcho-capitalist theorist. He's a senior fellow of the nonprofit think tank Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. He is best known for his 1976 book, Defending the Undefendable, which takes contrarian positions in defending acts which are illegal or disreputable, but Block argues are actually victimless crimes or benefit the public. Thank you, Block, for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you. I'm also joined here today by my co-host, Alex Popovic. Hello. Uh, great to be here. Great to talk to you, Walter Block, and great to have a good podcast, a good discussion. Hey, we have two Alexes. Great. Hopefully it doesn't get too confusing. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. you'll, well, one will be Alexander, the other will be Alex. There you go. Okay. <laughs> We'll get into like the ideas now. First off, I just want to ask a general base question. Could you give a short explanation as to how you became a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist? Yes, I uh, am Jewish and I was brought up in Brooklyn and everyone was a pinko commie there. So I was a pinko commie, uh, sort of by osmosis. And um, I was a buddy of Bernie Sanders and I had roughly the same views as him. We were in high school together and overlapped in college and uh, we were on the track team together and ran the same distances. So, we were, you know, we were friendly and I had the same views as him. And then Ayn Rand came to Brooklyn College to lecture and I came to boo and hiss her because she favored free enterprise and everyone knew that free enterprise was fascism and evil and monstrous and, and it'd be starvation if we had capitalism. Afterward, they announced that there was a uh, lunch in her honor and anyone could come from the audience, uh, even if you disagreed. And I came, I wanted to convert it to socialism. And um, there was this long, long table, maybe 50 people on a side, 100 people, and she was sitting at the very head of it. And there was only room at the other end. So I sat there and I turned to my neighbor and I said, hey, um, uh, capitalism sucks and socialism is great or something like that. I don't know the exact words. And he said, well, I don't really know all that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. So I stuck my head in between Ayn Rand's and Nathaniel Brandon's, her chief lieutenant. And I said, there's a socialist here who wants to debate someone on socialism and capitalism. And I said, who is it? I said, me. And I was, a, I guess, a junior in college, maybe 20 years old. And uh, Brandon was maybe 35 and ran 50 or so. I'm not sure the exact ages. And Brandon was very nice, very gentle. He said, look, I'll come to the other end of the table and talk to you. There's no room here under two conditions. One, you don't let this conversation lapse. You continue until we settle it. And secondly, you read two books that I'll recommend. Well, he recommended Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And I read the books. I couldn't put Atlas Shrugged down. That book, I mean, it was around 1,200 pages. I, it took me the weekend. I slept very little. I read that book. I read the Hazlitt book. I came to his house and Ayn Rand's house four or five times. And I was converted. I was a limited government libertarian, sort of like them. I, I, I never really took to the rest of the cultish part of them. And I never really got into the metaphysics and epistemology and aesthetics and all that other stuff. But the economics, boy, oh boy, did I like that. So that's how I got converted. All right. Thanks for that one. Uh, I have a question about evictionism. How did you come to the conclusion of gentlest means necessary? Well, you know, um, if you trespass on my lawn and and I have a howitzer, <laughs> would it be okay if I just shot you with it? No, 
uh, I have to say to you, hey, Alex, do uh, you realize you're on my lawn? If you say, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't realize, <laughs> you know, you get off. Uh, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't shoot you at all. It's a, you know, de minimis kind of a crime of, of trespass. On the other hand, if you say, well, you know, nah, 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 I, I'm on your lawn and I'm going to stay on your lawn and uh, too bad. And now I have a choice. I have a net uh, that I can drop on you or I have a rubber bullet that I could shoot you with or I have a, a bullet that'll kill you. Well, I think I'm obligated to uh, do the net or the rubber bullet or something like that, because if I if I uh, do too much uh, in terms of self-defense, it, it starts uh, seeping over into offense. I mean, all you did was trespass and, and you know, go like this to me. And, you know, th that shouldn't be a, uh, I shouldn't be able to kill you over that. On the other hand, if you come charging me with a knife, well, you know, then all bets are off. So I, I think part and parcel of libertarian punishment theory or defense theory is you have to stop the crime in the gentlest manner possible. And look, Alex, you look like you're, I don't know, 20 years old or so. If you were three years old, uh, and you trespassed, it would be very, very different because, you know, a three-year-old uh, uh, can't really do any harm. And, you know, uh, I should probably, you know, just try to call the cops and get your parents to find out they have a missing kid. So I think it's a, a general statement of libertarian defense theory that you should stop the crime, but you shouldn't commit a crime yourself in the act of stopping the crime. And I think uh, going over a board and, uh, you know, killing somebody for a minor, you know, stealing bubblegum from my grocery uh, would be uh, way over over the top. Yeah, I get that. Um, I'll ask one more question, then I'll hand it over to Alexander. Uh, sure. What do, you, what do you like some like general thoughts on Roger Garrison and his model of the business cycle? Oh, I'm a big fan of Roger Garrison. Uh, Roger Garrison's a great guy. Um, I have to tell you my Roger Garrison story. I was, uh, 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 I, I stopped how I became a full libertarian with, with Ayn Rand, but then I met Murray Rothbard, which is a whole other story. And um, Murray Rothbard uh, used to get up at around two in the afternoon and go to sleep around six in the morning. And uh, I was part of the living room crowd where we would all gather and, you know, play risk or tell stories or talk about libertarianism and Austrian economics. And Roger Garrison um, was going to visit us, uh, us, it was Murray's living room. I was just there. And um, he was a, a Southern boy. He's from Alabama. And, you know, he's a polite guy. And um, around, you know, I, I guess the dinner started around eight or so. And uh, by around 1030 or 11, he started looking at his watch and sort of making motions that he would leave. And he was there with the express purpose of sharing what he did, namely put Austrian business cycle theory on, on um, graphs and diagrams. And so far, we hadn't done it any of it. And Roger was ready to leave because, you know, he's a polite guy and it's uh, 1030 or 11. And, and Murray says, you know, shut up, stop, you're not leaving, <laughs> you know, we're just snorting. And uh, Roger was amazed. Uh, he didn't realize that this was a, a two in the morning, three in the morning kind of an operation. So that's my Roger Garrison. That's when I first met him. And I've uh, uh, liaised with him many a time. We're both uh, on the faculty of the Mises University, and we're both involved with the Mises Institute. Uh, I... Um, I once wrote an article attacking the triangle and, and his um, thesis was built on the Hayekian triangle. So uh, I'm not a, a full fan of his, but you know, my co-author in that article, Bill Barnett, he and I have a little disagreement. Bill said, you know, 
the triangle is all nonsense and it's a negative thing. And, and I wrote in a footnote, we both wrote in a footnote and I say, well, look, it's a heuristic device. I, I'm used to thinking in terms of the triangle. When I think of the uh, Austrian business cycle theory, I think triangle. And, uh, you know, Roger, uh, what Roger was trying to do is, um, see the, the, the way the triangle originally was in Hayek, time was on the vertical axis. And, and Roger put time on the horizontal axis in order to make it more amenable to mainstream people. Because mainstream people, you know, you sort of zig when you should be zagging and, and you put time on the vertical axis and people might just reject it on that basis alone. So he put it on the horizontal axis and, and he tried to uh, make Austrian business cycle theory more understandable, comprehensible to mainstream economists. And for that, I can only salute him. On the other hand, I think he made some mistakes in, in what he did. Uh, look, no, none of us are perfect. Uh, he's not perfect. And, and this, in this article, Bill Barnett and I criticized him a little bit. But I'm a big fan of his. I, I, I certainly support the idea of making ABCT, Austrian Business Cycle Theory, more uh, amenable to mainstream economists so that we could get you know, more um, popularity for it or, or get, get it out into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. With the, with, because obviously you're a big proponent of libertarian and anarcho-capitalist theory, um, it's growing a lot among the younger um, audiences and ages. Um, and we're seeing that especially with the growth of the internet and reading is becoming more accessible. Um, but there's also a, a growth of inspecting not only the economic side of things, but the governmental side of things. And with everything going on with COVID, I'm sure you've talked a lot about COVID. Everybody's tired of COVID at this point. Um, I just wanted to get your kind of a, uh, opinion on, um, government mandated mask orders. Um, just what are, what are your general thoughts on that? Well, I did write an article on this in the Journal of Libertarian Studies and I pretty much attacked everybody. And I divided all libertarians into hawks and doves. And the hawks of people say, you gotta wear the mask, you gotta get the, the vaccine, you gotta wash your hands, you gotta do social distance and, and we're gonna shut down everything uh, except you know uh, grocery stores where people gotta eat. And, um, uh, and, and no crowds and any crowds will arrest the crowd. And, and, and uh, the extremists among them would say, um, and we're gonna vaccinate you with the thing, whether you like it or not. Namely, we're gonna have compulsory vaccination. We're gonna stick a needle in your arm and, and shoot you up with uh, not, not, <laughs> not heroin, but with, uh, with the vaccine. That's one group, uh, they are the hawks. And then the doves are saying it's all BS and um, you know, it's sort of like the flu and, you know, uh, very few people are going to die um, from it. A lot of people die with it, but not very, very few people die from it. If you're 85 and you have a fourth stage uh, lung cancer and you also have COVID, well, you know, this might tip you over. And uh, old people uh, who are vulnerable with diabetes or cancer, or obese or whatever, you know, they should uh, stay, stay at home. And, and the government should, you know, keep its mitts off of the economy and, and, and stop violating freedom. And I say they're both wrong. Why are they both wrong? They're both wrong because I believe as an economist in this thing called specialization and division of labor. Qua economy, qua, qua libertarian, I don't know which is right. I don't know whether um, uh, COVID is, is a, a horrible disease or not. And, and qua libertarian, I shouldn't say anything. I should be a little bit more modest. I shouldn't get out on a, on a limb and, and, and drag libertarianism with me because suppose I'm wrong. 
Now, as a as a as a layperson who is uh, not a libertarian, my view is roughly uh, with the doves. I think it's all uh, nonsense, and I think uh, they purposely um, overestimate the numbers. There was a guy who died in a motorcycle accident. And he had COVID and they counted in a motorcycle crash and they counted that as a COVID death. They vastly overestimated it. But qua libertarian, we libertarians have no business um, uh, taking positions on areas that are not libertarian uh, because of specialization and division of labor. That's, that, that's my view. Now, this idea of uh, sticking something in your arm with, with a syringe, whether you like it or not, it sounds pretty anti-libertarian. However, if COVID is uh, really, really bad and you exhale and, and you uh, uh, infect me, it's very contagious. Well, you know, if I go out on the street with a gun and I start shooting bullets at random, uh, you know, you've got to stop me. Well, if COVID is really that bad, such that instead of shooting bullets, you're shooting, um, um, what do you call it, viruses, Right. Well, we got to stop you. And if the way to stop you is to inject you with uh, with this uh, vaccine, well, then we're going to do it. But uh, but I'm saying that, that quality return, we don't really know. So we should be a little bit more modest and, and we shouldn't be hawks and doves and uh, or hawks or doves. Uh, they're both wrong. Uh, so that was my thesis in this article. And uh, nobody has written an article saying why I'm wrong. So um, um, so far, so good. Well, there's a joke about so far so good. You know, a guy falls off the top of the Empire State Building and on the 20th floor on the way down, somebody says, how are you doing? He says, so far so good. It's a little windy, but you know, so I might be wrong, but that's my view until I'm convinced otherwise. Right. And um, we're also seeing with uh, a lot of Republicans and Republicans that like to say they're libertarian. I'm sure you've seen um, people who've, who are very pro-government, big government, say that they're libertarian. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a separate discussion entirely. But um, these people are saying, you know, if the business mandates it, then we're good. But it's when the government mandates it that it's bad. Do you think it's a smart idea for businesses to be mandating masks um, or requiring masks for customers to come in and, and buy their products? Well, that's a total entrepreneurial decision. I mean, um, if I were an entrepreneur, I would probably do it because my assessment of uh, the populace is that, that if I don't do it, uh, people aren't going to come into my store. So uh, as a businessman, I, I think it would be a good idea. And, you know, there are some stupid libertarians who say, how dare they make me wear a mask in this store? And I say, hey, whose store is it? It's not your store. It's their store. And, and if some 17-year-old uh, girl tells you, an adult, uh, to wear a mask, you wear a bloody mask or don't go in there. Uh, it, it's similar with condominium associations. I was once at a libertarian gathering in a condo and they were bitching and moaning, well, you know, the condo makes us uh, have the same color drapes and the condo makes us do this and uh, forbids that. I say, hey, you agreed to be in the condo. Shut up. You know, it's part of the contract. If you agreed, uh, you have, you know, look, I, I used to play in an orchestra. I play violin. I'm a hit violinist. If you have a neighbor you hate, you hire me to play near his house. Do you know what the orchestra conductor did with the woodwinds and, and the brass winds? He would tell them when to breathe. If a trumpet player breathed at the wrong time, the, the, the guy would hit the podium and, and say, you know, you jerk, uh, breathe when I tell you to breathe. Well, you know, that's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty authoritarian, pretty draconian. But you agree to be in the orchestra. So if you're in the orchestra, listen to the conductor. Uh, sure. I have a 
So one question I've been at, I've been wondering to myself that I'm going to ask you is what topic as libertarians do we need to write more on and research more on? Huh. That's a vicious, nasty question. How dare you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I just uh, finished Defending the Undefendable 3. I sent it to the publisher. And I just uh, finished um, um, my book on evictionism, too. I have two books on evictionism. And uh, I also have a series on private property, privatized roads, privatized space, privatized um, what is it, oceans and rivers. So I'm, I'm sort of uh, at a crossroads. I'm not sure what I'm, I'm going to do next. I think what I'll do is uh, I have a whole bunch of student papers. So I'm going to try to get them in the referee journals and maybe do a few op-eds and you know, just sort of whine about the general, um, uh, what do you call it, um, cancellation. Everybody's being canceled now for, you know, uh, I use the word oriental uh, and some student complained. Uh, and now the provost at my university is on my case, you know, are you allowed to use the word oriental and, and you're not supposed to say what is it um colored people you now have to say people of color you're supposed to say black and, and you're supposed to what is it uh, capitalized black but not white i mean they keep changing things and and uh, i'm probably right about that a little bit uh so i'm not sure i i guess you know maybe i'll do a little bit more in austrian economics um i you know what I'm, I, you know, now that you make me think about this, I think what the next big thing I'm going to do is I had this article um, that I'm very, very happy with. And the question that I try to address is why if libertarianism is so great, are there so few libertarians? Mm. Why Ron Paul is, is magnificent. I mean, he doesn't walk on water. He runs on water. He floats above water. He's magnificent. And he runs for president and he gets 1% of the vote. And, and why isn't Rand Paul president? Well, you know, Rand Paul's got a shot, but why there's so few libertarians? And my answer was sociobiology. And I had two co-authors on this. And uh, the idea was that we're hardwired toward um, benevolence. If somebody, you see somebody choking, you're gonna go grab them and give them a Heimlich maneuver. Uh, you know, you see somebody lying around, you'll call the, an ambulance. We're hardwired um, to be nice, to be benevolent. But we're not hardwired for free enterprise because a million years ago, this is sociobiology, um, we uh, had no benefit in in um, in having markets because you know we lived in a group of 25 people and who you know who traded it was like a family. So I think the next big thing I'm going to do is explore what sociobiology has to say about violence. I mean, we have murderers, we have rapists, we have um, wars all the play all over the place and try to figure out why are we hardwired for such nastiness? Uh, I don't know, you know, I look at people like Mao and, and, and um, um, uh, Hitler and um, Stalin who killed millions and millions of people. And the way I, I try to comfort myself because they are fellow human beings, you know, they had two eyes and two noses, no, one nose, two eyes, two ears, uh, two feet, you know, they're in the same species as us and look at how vicious they are. And I try to say, well, maybe we needed viciousness to survive the, um, the saber-toothed lion or the tiger or something like that. And, and which would I rather have? A world where you have wonderful people like Mozart and, and Murray Rothbard and Stalin and Hitler and Mao? Or would I rather have no people at all and, and we, we die because uh, we weren't nasty enough to fight off the bears and, and the wolves and, and, and uh, animals like that? And obviously, I, I'll take what we have now rather than having no people at all.
So uh, that might be my next project to start thinking and writing about that. Yeah, uh, that's cool. Uh, I'll ask one more, then give it back to Alexander. So, if what would your advice be to anyone just getting into libertarianism, and which what would your advice be on how to spread it? Well, my advice, if you're just getting into libertarianism, is stay in the closet. Like if you go to college and you spout off about libertarianism, they'll fail you and they'll say that you're, uh, uh, what is it, offensive or you're, uh, I don't know, a fascist or you're a racist or God knows what they'll say. So I, I would say keep cool on that. And if you're just starting out as a professor and you don't have tenure yet, stay in the closet. Go write about something, uh, I mean, uh, less um, uh, high strung or, you know, less uh, dangerous to write about. When you get tenure, I have tenure now and, you know, still you can be in danger, but a lot less. So I would say um, chill out, stay in the closet. You know, the gays for many years, they had to stay in the closet because if you were outed, they, they, they would beat you up or, or they would fire you or, you know, bad things would happen. Happily now gays can stay out of the closet and they can live decent lives. Uh, then the question, well, how best to uh, spread libertarianism? Well, one way is what we're doing right now. We're talking about it. But uh, my uh, take on, on this spread of libertarianism is I ask, who are the two most successful people in spreading libertarianism? And my answer is Ayn Rand for my generation and Ron Paul for your generation. And then I asked, well, what were they like? And they were just about opposites in demeanor. I mean, Ron Paul is a sweetie pie. I mean, he... he you sort of feel he's going to hug you in the next second. I mean, remember his thing, Revolution, and he had L-O-V-E in there? That, that's Ron Paul. He, he's a lovely, lovely sweetie pie guy. Ayn Rand, you call her a sweetie pie, she'll smack you in the face. <laughs> she was not a sweetie pie. She was nasty, but she was very successful. So, and I would say Milton Friedman probably was the third most successful in converting people to libertarianism. And he also had a very different demeanor and much more scholarly um, uh, statistics and this and that and the other. So what I get from this is there's no one right way to spread libertarianism mm -hmm. because the two or three most successful people were almost opposites of each other. So my advice is, you know, I, I am a co-author with Bill Barnett a lot. And one time we had three or four articles uh, in the hopper and he said, well, which one should I work on next? And I said, whichever is the most fun unless we have a deadline from a, from a project, do what's the most fun. So if you want to promote libertarianism, do it the way is the most fun for you. If it's writing, if it's giving a speech, if it's doing a blog like you're now doing, whatever it is, enjoy because uh, liberty, the promotion of liberty should be fun. And, and if it's not, you're going to burn out and I don't want people to burn out. So my advice on how to spread liberty is to do, just do what's the most fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, another uh, question that people have, and I think um, this was big uh, in some communities, I think almost a year ago, um, some libertarian communities was a debate on how courts would work in a more libertarian or anarcho-capitalist society. Um, they say that uh, the lower class or lower class people would be more exploited by bribery and corruption in the courts. Um, could you talk about how court would work in an anarcho-capitalist society? Well, I think they'd work much better. Uh, not perfectly, because the, the human, there the, the will be human beings. Mm -hmm. In a full libertarian society, they'll still be murderers and rapists. 
hopefully fewer and, and we'll be very draconian in punishing them. So there'll be fewer of them, but there'll still be some, that's the human condition. Uh, so the human condition will also include bribery and, you know, uh, uh, chicanery and, and all sorts of fraud and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the economist was once, how is your wife? And came the answer, compare to what? Well, we have to compare anarcho-capitalist courts with present courts. Well, present courts are a pain in the neck. You know, you, you go to court and it'll take you 10 years to get, <laughs> to get a, a solution. Uh, I have this acquaintance of mine who is a professor of electrical engineering at Stanford University. And a lot of companies that deal with um, nerdy stuff, what they'll do is they'll put him in the contract and they'll say, if we ever have a dispute over anything, let's go to this guy and uh, whatever he says, we'll agree to. Well, he's like a, a private court. Why do they go to him? Why don't they go to a, a, a regular court? Well, the regular court judge doesn't know exactly, you know, the uh, details of, of electrical, whatever it is, this guy does. And also this guy has a reputation when he gives a, um, a, a verdict, even though it's against you, you can sort of see where he's coming from and you can say, well, you know, I don't really agree, but I see the point or, uh, you know, uh, take uh, the NBA and, and the NFL, the NFL just stopped and the NBA is, is now ongoing. Those referees are all private courts. Right. And they'll have contests to see who is the best referee. And those were, I mean, and, you know, in basketball, you got these guys who are six, eight, six, ten, uh, weighing, you know, 250 and they're crashing against each other. It's really rough to be a good referee. Well, those are private referees. Imagine the government refereeing that sort of thing. It would just be horrendous. And the point is that if you're not a good referee, they'll fire you or people won't go to you in the first place. I mean, if, um, if the referee always rules in favor of the richer uh, uh, appellant, you know, there, there are two people uh, disputing and one is richer than the other and he always picks the rich guy, well, nobody's going to go to him. Even the rich guy is going to go to him because uh, there'll be a richer guy and uh, he'll lose. Namely, people will pick uh, judges uh, based on, um, uh, you know, common sense or knowledge of the law or something like that. In some countries, like in Canada, uh, the way you get judges is the guy who... Um, uh, gives up his parliamentary seat in order to get the prime minister a seat or something like that. Namely, you just get a political hack. And, and we get that all too often. Uh, I mean, look at our Supreme Court. Uh, there are some people on there. Well, I'm, I'm more of a, you know, you mentioned before the libertarianism and republicanism, we're sort of more uh, alike. Well, there is this group, uh, what's it called? The, the Law Society? Oh, I forget. Federalist Society which is sort of half libertarians and half conservatives, or maybe one third libertarians and two thirds conservatives, but the, the conservatives are welcoming of the libertarians. And uh, Donald Trump made a, a few good, uh, not so much with Roberts, but with the other people, uh, he made a few good uh, nominations, but uh, I, who is Biden gonna nominate? Uh, Biden's gonna nominate, he, he might nominate um, um, Barack Obama. Uh, for, for the next uh, Supreme Court seat if one comes open. I mean, it's not without the realm of possibility that he might do that. I don't think Obama is precluded from being a, a Supreme Court judge, but he'd be horrible. He, he's a socialist. I mean, he's just, you know, uh, lawless. So I, I think it's a very low bar that the private courts would be better than government courts. Easy, easy as pie. And we're talking, you know, Oregon just had a decriminalize. I think it just went into effect like a few weeks ago. Um, the decriminalization of drugs, um, at least in small quantities. Uh, weed is legal now in a few states. Um, 
what are your thoughts on people saying that this is an example of the government helping the people and offering them um, alternatives to just incarceration every time for drugs? God bless the government. I mean, I, I say this as an anarchist. Look, when they do something right, uh, we have to acknowledge that they did something right. Now, they didn't do it as much as we would like. Uh, I think only small amounts of heroin, and they're still against trafficking and buying and selling heroin and cocaine and stuff like that. But at least it's a step in the right direction, and we have to acknowledge that it is. And here, uh, there's a, a great diversion between libertarians and conservatives. The conservatives are, are crazy, you know, the, oh, we can't legalize that and we shouldn't even legalize marijuana. Well, you know, the, the problem of drugs is not the, the drugs itself, the problem is the prohibition of it. Look, we used to have prohibition of alcohol and, and we had people shooting each other over alcohol and we had bathtub gin, people dying from it. Uh, poison, poison alcohol. Now you, you want some booze, you go to the liquor store and nobody's shooting anyone over it. And it's the same thing with marijuana and cocaine. And one more crack at the, um, um, the Republicans. Uh, you mentioned uh, that there are some Republicans who are not really uh, libertarian. Take the minimum wage law. Now, Bernie and AOC and Biden want to have it to 15. But do you know uh, what, uh, what just happened? Uh, you got this guy, uh, Tom Cotton from um, Arkansas and Mitt Romney from Utah. And they want to have a $10 an hour minimum wage. Well, you know, minimum wage is a violation of rights. It says that, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I offer you guys uh, five bucks an hour to come wash my car, that's a crime. And, you know, it just creates unemployment. So the Republicans are sort of Democrats light on that issue. Now, they're a little bit better on economics than, than the liberals, and, and the liberals are a little bit better on personal liberties than the conservatives, but only libertarians are good on all issues. And then we're, and then we're accused of being inconsistent because we favor liberty, not only in economics, but also in, in, um, in personal liberty and also in foreign policy. So we must be crazy because we favor liberty across the board where the other guys favor you know, liberty here, but not there and there and not here. So we're the good guys. They're all not good guys. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, we appreciate you coming on. Um, it's been a great discussion. Um, we'll, well send you the link to the episode great. when it comes out. Um, Thanks for having me, and I'd be delighted to do it again. Um, uh, you asked great questions, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Great. Yeah, we're thinking about having a live panel sometime maybe in the next few months, so we'd love to have you then. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram pages at YIP Institute and at Watchverbum. You can also look at our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload multiple videos weekly. Have a good day.